Psalm 115, let us uh, read it together. Starting in verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They who make them are like unto them. So is everyone who trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, for He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. You're blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. We said last time this is called, uh, we are in a portion called the Egyptian Hallel. It is a series of psalms that... Uh, commemorates the Exodus experience of Israel and their settling in the land. Uh, if you look back into Psalm 114 that we looked at last time, uh, you see how the phenomena of Israel's leaving Egypt and entering into Canaan is expressed here, the sea dividing, the Jordan parting so that they could cross it, the mountains being moved, shaking, and so forth. Uh, now we come to this one, and, and we need to keep that sort of context in mind that we're dealing with the for, founding, the formation of the nation. In uh, verse 1, you'll notice that the psalmist expresses the desire of God's people that God be glorified and that all the glory belong to Him. Uh, God has said in His Word that He would not share or give His glory uh, to another. But notice that here it is the heart cry of those who worship God. And notice uh, they give glory for your mercy and for your truth's sake. One commentator put it like this, that uh, God makes His promises out of mercy. He keeps His promises out of truth. Or His faith, faithfulness might be a better translation of that word. So in other words, it is all of God, the fact that Israel is a nation, if we sort of keep that context in view tonight, uh, we've had a reminder of what had to happen for Israel to enter into Canaan in Psalm 114. All the miracles that took place, or they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be a nation had not God, by His power, brought them out. And so they're expressing this desire, not unto us, but unto Thy name, give glory. Uh, we who believe in sovereign grace find that to be a fundamental uh, principle of, of our theology. Uh, we would have our Arminian friends ask us, why is it so important to you uh, that you believe in unconditional election? 
Uh, why is it important to you that you believe in a God who predestinates all things? And, and the answer, well, number one, it's what God has revealed in His Word. But number two, it's that which reminds us that all glory belongs to God, all credit, all praise. Uh, if there is any uh, praise or credit to be given to anyone, uh, we want it to go to God. We ascribe glory to His name. And we may be an instrument in the hand of God, but we recognize that were it not for God, nothing of any consequence would be uh, exercised or would be executed. So all praise belongs to God in salvation uh, and, and as well as in our Christian life, in our walk, in the ministry of the gospel. I'm thinking of Paul saying, it is by the grace of God I am what I am, and I worked harder than the rest of them. Not me, but the grace of God which was with me. So the whole package is one of grace. It really makes no sense to deny a portion of the package. Uh, Barry was, was that you? Oh, that's Darren I was talking to earlier tonight talking about his debate with a Molinist friend. If you don't know what Molinists are, you just as, just as well that you don't. But uh, the point, he's, he's had this debate, running debate, and the guy just ignores what the Scripture says. He has his opinion, um, and really you get to the point you don't even have anything to talk about. You've, you know, you have no common ground uh, if, you don't believe, if you don't take the Word of God as your authority. Uh, I had a article Neil Strongoski sent me uh, this morning, I think it was, about a, 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 a Bible college teacher in a Southern Baptist school and um, denying the fall of man, denying that Adam's sin had anything to do with you and me. And I'm thinking, man, this goes back to uh, Augustine debating Pelagius in the 4th century. This goes back I mean, even a Roman Catholic wouldn't say that. They, they have their sacrament of baptism to remove original sin, but they at least believe in original sin. Uh, this guy was denying that Adam had anything to do with us that we're connected in any way. So there comes a point that if you're going to deny the God of grace, then you might as well deny the whole thing. I mean, don't go halfway. Don't sit on the fence. Uh, you're either in or you're out. Either God gets the credit or he doesn't, one or the other. And so notice the psalmist here is making it his cry. God's people want him to be glorified. And then notice in verse 2 the question, Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? I like the way this fits with Psalm 114. Is that Psalm 114 has given us the demonstrations of God's presence with his people in a very dramatic fashion at the Red Sea, at Jordan. Sinai. Now, however, that they're in the land, uh, the heathen, and if this, for instance, was written, say, during the Babylonian captivity, mock the people of God, saying, where's your God now? Notice the word now there. Where is now thy God? Maybe God was with you when he brought you into the land, but where is he now? We hadn't seen him work in a while. Um, we sometimes get the erroneous notion that if I'd just lived in the Old Testament time, I would have seen all these miracles. You ever have that idea? That, man, they just saw miracles left and right. Uh, the fact is, is there were three great seasons of miracles recorded in the Bible. One was at the Exodus in the days of Moses. One that 114 talks about. 
The other is in the day, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And the third episode is during the ministry of our Lord and His apostles. But outside of those three seasons of miracles, just numerous miracles occurred during those three times, but once you get away from those times, you didn't see many miracles. They might go centuries without seeing any miraculous work. So it wasn't like they had all this stuff going on. There were times when there was nothing happening miraculously. And notice the pagans here are saying, well, where is now your God? He might have been with you when you came into the land, crossed the Jordan, but where is he now? Uh, Especially in the case of being subjugated to the Babylonians, our gods are bigger than your God. Our gods whipped your God. That's what was going on in their heads in the days of ancient warfare. And so we at times wonder if God is anywhere around. Uh, We see no evidence of His power. Uh, We see no um, displays of His presence. And we wonder, is God? uh, Where is He? It's pretty easy to see when He's dividing seas, when He's got a pillar of fire and cloud. But uh, what about those times when we don't see those things? Where is our God? Well, there's a wonderful reply in verse 3. And this is always the answer that we can give no matter what the situation is. Where's our God? Our God's in the heavens. What's He doing up there? He's doing anything He wants to. That's a great reply. Number one, it reminds us that God is in heaven. As we said last time, He has the high ground. You recall back in Psalm 113, In verse 6, he has to humble himself to behold things that are in heaven. I mean, to us, heaven's way up yonder. We look up. God has to stoop and look down to see things that are in the heavens. It is a way, a poetic way of expressing that God is far, far higher than we. So high he has to stoop to see things we can't even see into. He's out of reach of our our reach. He's out of reach of man. He's out of reach of all his enemies. And so what is he doing in heaven? Well, the answer is anything he he pleases. Uh, He has done according to his will. He is sovereign over all, does according to his pleasure. Uh, There's an interesting text. We hit it in studying Isaiah. It's over in Isaiah 46. has to do with King Cyrus You'll notice that Cyrus is named, called by name in Isaiah 45, verse 1, about 150 years before he lived. And God more or less says, who who else out there? He challenges the pagans to bring their soothsayers and their fortune tellers, their prophets, and and basically saying, well, let me see what you got. I I can name this guy before he's ever born, 150 years. Uh... Come on, give it your best shot. Show me what you can do. And of course, he's met with utter silence. They have no reply. And that is one of the proofs in Isaiah that he alone is God because he alone can do such a thing. Well, here in Isaiah 46, in verse 9, God speaks and says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. Notice that there again you have God doing whatever He pleases. 
Notice he is saying the reason that I am God and there's none like me is that I alone can tell you the end from the beginning. Most of us got to sit through the whole movie before we know how it turns out. Not God. He knows how it's going to turn out from the very beginning. And the reason he knows how it's going to turn out, not just because he learns about it, but because he's the one who made the movie. He's the one who controls history. So, of course, it turns out as he knows from the beginning. Well, you say, well, God, can you give us an example of that? Can you, you, you say you can declare uh, things from ancient times that are not and, and so forth? Well, yeah, just as a matter of fact, verse 11, calling a ravenous bird from the east. He's not really a bird. Notice the next phrase, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. And he's, of course, talking about King Cyrus. He says, Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Those are strong expressions of the sovereignty of God. That whatever He desires, whatever He pleases, that He does, and He will, in fact, bring it to pass. And that He alone, then, is to be worshipped as God. He is in a class by Himself. And again, it's interesting, a couple of times in this section, he challenges the idolaters to bring your, your oracles, bring your prophets, bring your idols. Let's have them do something like this. There was a story of a couple of preachers walking down the streets of London in the last century, and uh, they met a woman fortune teller, and she said, for uh, two shillings, I'll tell you your fortune. And uh, one of these preachers said, I'll give you a pound if you can tell me what I was doing yesterday. <laughs> you know, she can't tell you the past. How in the world can she tell you the future? You know, past already occurred. Well, that's a pretty good answer. If you can't tell me what I was doing yesterday, I don't have any confidence you can tell me what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. So anyway, that is the basis of God's uniqueness the fact that he is like no other, no other in his league, no other God beside him. And then notice in verses 4 through 8, we have a description, a contrast between the living God in verse 3, who's in the heavens doing whatsoever he pleases, whatever he wants, nothing too hard, nothing too difficult, nothing wears him out. You know, we put in a hard day's work, we got to rest for a little while. Not God. He is, his activity is his power, his omnipotence is not diminished by his activity. That's, that's a fascinating thought. There's several things about God that just stagger you. One is that he can work all day long and never get tired. He's no less strong, no less powerful after he has exercised his power than he was before. He doesn't need to rest up. Um, his wisdom, old uh, Scott, Scott, what's his last name? Got somebody over in West Hills of West Virginia uh, put it this way. He says, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? <laughs> and that's up. God is not learning a doggone thing. He hadn't learned anything since he has existed because he doesn't need to learn. He can't learn. He already knows everything. Nothing ever occurs to him. If things occur to us all the time, we're learning new information. Not so God. So anyway, these are staggering thoughts. Now, contrast that with the idolatry of the heathen. And notice you can sort of see the comedy here, tongue-in-cheek, uh, 
the mocking. Notice it was the heathen mocking the Israelite. Where's your God? We can't see him. Now notice who's mocking who. Uh, Notice that their idols are silver and gold in verse 4, the work of men's hands. Now that alone is telling. Rather than man being created in the image of God, in their system, God is created in the image of man. God is being formed by the hands of man. That's your first clue. Something's terribly wrong here with this. Because they're made out of substance. Rather than a God who creates all things, now you have a God who himself is made out of material substance. And then notice the features. These gods have mouths, and we go down the list here. They have eyes, they have ears, they have noses, they have hands, they have feet. They have a mouth. But they can't use them. Uh, There's a rather humorous parody on idolatry over in Isaiah that the goldsmith fashions this thing and they have to, they get this thing standing up. He's got feet, but they have to nail him down lest he tip over. They've got to prop him up. And that's a good way of putting it. The third gods need propping up. Uh, Their gods have no power. And notice that the contrast is with the living God who speaks and sees the the wisdom of God, nothing known to him. Uh, God who spake in times past by the prophets hath in these last days spoken by his Son. Our God speaks. Our God works with his hands. Our God sees and hears. He knows everything. So notice the great contrast. But notice verse 8. Here is where the jide comes in. Here it was the Israelite being mocked. Where's your God? We can't see him anywhere. No, we got a God that you can see, the pagans would say. Here's our God. Yeah, he's got eyes and feet and hands and so forth. But at the end of the day, verse 8 says, they who make them are likened to them. And notice that gets back to this idea that the God is being made in man's image and that everyone who trusts in these idols are like the God that they trust in. You remember the passage in the New Testament where John, for instance, and it's in Mark's Gospel, that hearing, they hear not, seeing, they see not, and so forth. Notice that the same thing is being pressed here in the Old Testament. That they who worship these gods are like their idols. They may have eyes, but they don't see. They may have ears, but they don't really hear. Uh, that something is going on deeply in the heart of man for you to bow down and worship that which your own hands have created. Again, a parody in Isaiah is the man cuts down a tree, cooks his supper, chops half of it up for firewood, cooks his supper, takes the other half and carves it into a god and stands it up and bows down and worships it. It's a picture of just how blind man can be. So notice we have the contrast between this incomparable God in the first three verses, then the idolatry of the heathen in verses 4 through 8. And now in verses 9 through 14, we see a call to Israel, and not to Israel alone, to trust this God. He's trustable. The the idol God who has eyes but can't see, ears can't hear, there's not really much use praying to a God who can't hear. There's not much use listening to a God who can't speak. And there's sure not much sense in putting your trust in a God who has to be propped up. 
manufactured by man's hand, created by man, and, and carried around by man, propped up by man, why in the world would you put your trust in that God? And so here in verse 9, there's a call to Israel, to the house of Aaron, and then in verse 11, all that fear the Lord, to put their trust in Him. Uh, Notice the three classes, Israel, the people of Israel, the house of Aaron, which would, of course, mean the priests, the, the leaders of the ceremonial law, and then in verse 11, all that fear the Lord. Uh, you do know that by the time of Jesus, to be a God-fearer was the way that they described the worship of Gentiles who were proselytes, or in some cases weren't proselytes to the Jewish faith. Uh, however, they were God-fearers. Uh, we had the pictures of the court of the Gentiles up on the wall uh, last Sunday during Sunday school, and the reason they had to make that court so large was by the time of the New Testament time, You had a lot of Gentiles who weren't Jews and had never proselyted to the Jewish faith, but were worshipers of Jehovah. Uh, We have the example of Cornelius, the centurion up at Caesarea, who was in that category. He was a God-fearer. Therefore, you'll hear Paul say, To all of you who are of the family of Abraham and Jacob, and to all who fear God. It's, It's a universal call. And so notice the three classes, and they are called upon to trust in God. The reason is that He is their help and He is their shield. It's sort of a way of saying He's their offense and their defense. That is, He is their help. When they go to battle, when they go to war, when they go to do something, He is able to give them power. He's able to use them and assist them. And then secondly, he's their defense in the sense that he's their shield. You don't kill people with your shield. You keep them being killed with the shield. And so he is the one who empowers us to do, to war. He is the one who defends us as our defense. And then notice the statement of blessing in verse 12. That it's like the statement in Hebrews that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, God is a blesser of those who trust in him. There's a reason we put our trust in him. is because we don't have any reason to be disappointed. He will not fail us. His power, his omnipotency, his covenant fidelity is there for us. So we can safely trust in him. And so notice the next, we go right through the same list again. In verse 12, that he will bless us. He's going to bless the house of Israel. He'll bless the house of Aaron. He'll bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Same categories that he exhorted to put their trust in God. Here's the reason, because God will bless you. And God will increase you more and more, you and your children. He'll make you fruitful. And then finally, in verses 15 through 18, we get what we might call the spiritual geography of things. You'll notice that we are being blessed, to pick up on that last thought, by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now that needs to be kept central in our thinking, that the God that we worship and serve is the God who has made both things seen and unseen. Uh, Paul uses that language, and uh, we don't, a lot of 
a lot of times we we don't think in those terms that there are things unseen. Uh, we think of angelic beings, of course, but the unseen part of us, the soul of man. Um, one of the problems, among the many problems with evolution, is the notion of where did our conscience come from? How did that evolve? It would seem like if evolution is no more than the survival of the fittest, you're better off without a conscience than with a conscience. I mean, you go to killing folks, your conscience acts up. It ought to be the other way around. You ought to be rewarded when you kill off the weaker ones, get them out of the gene pool, right? Where did the conscience come from? How did that evolve? What about the sense of our morality of what is right and wrong, our, our innate sense. Um, I was talking at the dinner table tonight about a pastor in Ohio that had been listening in to the series on Job. Been finding out more and more people listening in to this series. But he sent me a link to a fellow who was speaking up at Alistair Begg's conference in Cleveland. And uh, this fellow was just sort of talking about how uh, man is born with this innate sense of fairness and unfairness, which, if you think about it, is just an expression of legalism. That when I don't get what I think I've got coming to me, it's not fair. Um, he was talking about how his kids around the table, they never they divide out the portions, you know, and it's never fair. The kid, the little old kid, as soon as he's old enough to observe that his brother over here or his sister is getting a bigger bowl of ice cream than he's getting, what does he say? That's not fair. Well, you see, you've got to be a legalist to say it's not fair because what you're saying is there's a sense of rightness that goes along with what, what I deserve, what I earn. And, and that's, of course, the parable of those laborers. Some had worked all day long, and they stand there watching this guy that worked only an hour, and they say, this isn't fair. You see, it's only a legalist that can possibly make that claim. But notice that our children, from the time they're conscious, time they can walk, they already are legalists. Because they know, wait a minute, that's not fair. They, You can almost do a mental accounting. This guy was rather humorous. He was talking about his college days when they would get together and buy pizza. And uh, he said he, you know, he knew, number one, there was certain pizza he liked and he didn't, didn't like. And so they would, they would sit around, how many pizzas are we going to buy? And, okay, how many pizzas are you going to eat? And he said, these girls, they'd say, well, we're just going to eat two, two pieces, veggie. And, of course, he's wanting pepperoni, sausage, meat, you know. And, and he says, goes, goes and gets the pizza. And then these girls are over there eating his pepperoni. And they're eating more than two pieces. And, uh, you know, and he's sort of mentally in his mind. You ever been in a situation like that where you're sitting around the table saying, wait a minute, they just said they wasn't going to eat that. That's not fair. They, they only chipped in for a couple of pieces and they're eating the whole pizza. Isn't it amazing? And I, that's just a common illustration of how we immediately resort to legalism. I'm thinking today as I'm sitting at the red light uh, down there on 305 where it goes from two lanes to one and the guy zips around me and gets in front. He didn't have to wait in line. No, that's not fair. He should have had to sit here like me and like these other people that are sitting in the line. How come he got to go up there to the front of the line? That's not fair. 
It just permeates everything we do, if you think about it. So what got me? How did I get on this? Ah, spiritual geography. That's what I was talking about. God is in a different location. Now, I don't mean by that that He doesn't exist everywhere in the sense that we think of the omnipresence of God, but I would remind you that Jesus, when He prays, looks up. He doesn't look at His feet, doesn't look down. He, he looks up and says, Father, who art in heaven. There's a sense in which God is everywhere, but there's a sense in which God manifests His glory in heaven. The old black preacher that asked Him one time, where's God? said he, He's in His glory. Well, that's where He's manifesting His glory in heaven. And so heaven here is His domain. And notice the next verse tells us, uh, the last part of verse 16 tells us that the earth is man's domain. He's given that to the children of men. Now that doesn't mean that He doesn't have anything to do with what goes on down here in earth. It just means that you and I are earth-bounded. We're down here on this plane of existence and God is up there in heaven. And right there we ought to sense something that the way God operates just might not be the way we operate. Of course, that's what we've been studying about Job, is that the way God is doing things with Job doesn't make worldly sense. It's not fair. The way the world thinks down here on this plane, that, that just doesn't make, that's not good accounting. Some, something's going haywire. And of course, that's what the whole book of Job really we've discovered is all about, trying to figure this thing out. God isn't doing things like we think He ought to do it. He's not acting fair by our definition of fairness. But notice here that there's two planes of existence here, and His fear is heavenly. It's, it's Isaiah. I keep going back to Isaiah. It's fresh on my mind. But in Isaiah 55, it says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the ways and thoughts of, man, of God higher than your thoughts. He doesn't work like we think He ought to work. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And here we have a good example of that in the study of what we've been doing on, on Sunday morning. Notice then in verse 17 another puzzling statement. He says, The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. There, uh, I was looking at Spurgeon's comments on this. He said there's several passages like this in the Psalms that if we just took them individually, we would think that the Psalms are teaching us that there is no existence past death. That that's it. When you die, sort of like a dog going to the dust. But uh, I don't think that's what's going on here because of the next verse where the psalmist says, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Notice there's a sense in which the psalmist is saying that uh, we will never quit praising God. And so there are some who take the dead here in verse 17 to mean those who are spiritually dead, those who belong only to this plane, the plane of earth, that when they die, that's it. Their opportunity for praising God is forever gone. Doesn't mean they cease to exist, cease to be, but their praise of God comes, uh, their opportunity, put it that way, to praise God ceases. Um, the fact is, though, that we, he says, we're going to bless God forever. 
And so that would lead you to believe that there was a sense in which they understood that, yes, they, had a, they have an existence coming in glory.